Today, we're going to take some time and we're going to talk about the importance of children and the importance of dedication. And then we're also going to look at why we do water baptisms and why do we take communion. So this is the last Sunday of the month, and here at this church, the last Sunday of every month, we take communion together. So we'll just kind of explain why we do that as much as we can in the time frame that we have. So when looking into the scriptures, we can see that dedicating homes, buildings, churches, or in, in the Old Testament days, temples, uh, and children to God is, is a tradition and it's something that we do as believers in God. And we get this from these passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 5, it shows that the people dedicated their homes to the Lord. Now, in the context of this verse, it actually says, it's, it's God is laying out the instructions about men who go into battle, who go to war. And he says, if you have bought a home and you have not yet dedicated it to the Lord, you stay home and dedicate your home to the Lord. There's no need for you to be on the battlefield. He also says in there, too, that if you've planted a vineyard and you have not yet been able to eat from your vineyard, stay home. There's no need for you to go to war. Now, now I'm a gardener, so I, I like that. <laughs> um, and it also says, if you're fearful, stay home. We don't want you on the battlefield. And so I was talking to somebody earlier in the week about uh, Old Testament and you know what we would call the dry reads like Leviticus and Numbers and even Deuteronomy and, and you know what I find those reads fascinating because it is in the when God was establishing his laws and his ways and his nation with the Israelites he established everything when it comes to medicinal and medical and our health and the way we should live and the things we should do and the things we should not do and if we adhere to these things he says, you will be blessed. And so even though we say we don't live under the law anymore, if it wasn't for the law established, you know, science today is constantly catching up with what God established thousands of years ago. So I love that kind of stuff. I, I, I like reading about it, um, and then I like getting into the commentaries and stuff, especially like this. But, but anyways, we see in this passage that people dedicated their homes to God. And then in Ezra, chapter 6, it says the temple of God was then dedicated with great joy by the people of Israel. So they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and they got the temple rebuilt, and they dedicated it to God. They had a big worship service, big event. And then in Luke, chapter 2, we see that, that uh, uh, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple to present him to the Lord. So it was Jewish tradition that the oldest male child was to be dedicated to God, and that's what they did. So dedication to God is a way of giving honor to him, and I believe it's a way of saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you have given us, these children, this house, this car, this job, this business. We honor him, we thank him, and when we dedicate that to him, we are saying that you, came, you come first, Lord God, and we understand that everything that we have comes from you. So... When we first bought our house, uh, when we were getting married, we bought the home, and then we went through every room. I think it was before we moved our stuff in there, and we asked God to bless every room. We dedicated the home to him. We prayed for our family that was to come, and 
We rebuked anything that may have been there that, w- that ought not be there. And we ask God to bless our home. And, and sometimes, you know, I think it's wise to do that. But what you're saying is, God, we thank you for this. We dedicate this to you. You have full reign. And then in the Gospels, though, when it comes to children, when we read in the Gospels, it appears that Jesus sees children as the most important of all his creation. Children are, are the most valued. Now, it's not to say that, that we adults are not valued. Of course we are. But I don't think there's anybody in this room that would argue with me that to say that their life's experiences has not changed them somewhat. They've, maybe we've become a little less trusting, maybe a little more skeptical, maybe a little more guarded, maybe a little more whatever. Because of life's experiences, the things we go through in life shape who we are, and then it becomes the lens to which we see the world through. But let's face it, though. There is an innocence about children that we lose when we get older, right? And, and, and as children, there is an, a trust in what they are being taught, in what they are being told, and the ways they are being brought up in. Because they trust the adult speaking into their life, right? And that innocent trust is something that Jesus spoke very highly of. So in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, in verse 13, it says this. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Now, I got a couple questions about this passage. First of all, I find it interesting that the disciples thought that the children were being a hindrance to Jesus. Now, in the New Living Translation, it says one day. So when I read that, I'm like, well, one day, just there was this one day. In the New King James, it says then, as if it's a, as if it's a continuation of, of the previous topic, which was divorce. And here comes these parents. We don't know how many. We don't know how many children. We don't know the age. I'm assuming anybody from about 12 on down, infants. I mean, maybe it was quite a scene, Right? Maybe Jesus was meditating. Maybe Jesus was just sitting there like, you know, these heavy topic discussions and people always pushing back at what I'm trying to teach and, oh, my goodness. And maybe he was having a conversation with somebody. Maybe he was just eating a sandwich. We don't know. What we do know, though, is, is that parents brought their children along and the disciples said, hey, hey, you're bothering Jesus. And Jesus who is a great storyteller. Well, well, first of all, so, so what did that scene look like, right? Because now Jesus scolds them. And it says that he was angry with his disciples. 
Now, in the New King James, it says he was greatly displeased. Now, as, as a parent, we often use words like, I'm not really mad, but I'm highly disappointed, hoping that that will really like, like, I would rather somebody be mad at me than disappointed or displeased, right? Because that means it's like, oh, man, now what do I got to do to, to gain their trust in me again? I'd rather you just be mad. It's an emotion. You're going to get over it. We can both just live our lives and be happily ever after, right? But displeased, disappointed, Jesus was angry. To me, that's kind of, those, are, those are strong adjectives to use. And so I'm picturing him making a point to let the disciples know in front of everybody that this was not a good thing that you're doing. And it's quite possible that later on that evening, there was some dinner table talk with Jesus and the disciples. You know, guys, not real happy about this. And Peter's like, oh, he's angry again. And, and John is like, well, he's angry at you because you started it. But. <laughs> but Jesus, when you read the Gospels, he was a storyteller, right? I believe he loved telling stories. And what he often did was he used conversations and he used situations as teachable moments. And so, yes, he was upset with the disciples. But instead of making that the focal point, he made the children the focal point, And he says, uh, let the children come to me. Now, first of all, actually, I want to back up. I skipped a whole section here. When it comes to children, there are some churches and there are some denominations that welcome the children in the service. They put a high priority on children being in the service. And there are some churches that have a sign on their door that say, no children allowed during the service. No children at all. Now, in this church, we welcome the children. I want the children to be in here. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it doesn't bother me. The sounds of children walking around, the restlessness, it doesn't bother me. And, 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 and here is the main reason for that. Because if you're new at this church, you might not feel comfortable taking your children into our children's ministry just yet. And, and, and we want you to know, I want you to know, totally get that. So have your family sit here in the sanctuary for a minute. Get a feel for the church. Get, a, get an idea if you want to come back as a family, right? And, and, and keep your children with you if that's what you want to do. Totally fine with that. Then something else that we do here at this church is we bring the children in during worship. We have our worship is at the end of our service. I know some other vineyards, they have worship at the, at the beginning of their service. They keep the children there, and then afterwards they bless them and send them off into the children's ministry to learn, to learn about God on their level. And that's what happens here. And also, I place a high value on at least getting the children to give them an idea of what happens in here. For instance, we all know, those of us that have children, that sometimes it is not the smoothest transition to get them from the house into the car, out of the car, and into church. Sometimes it can be a little stressful. And I think the stress comes through from dad more than it does mom. Am I, am I right? Or is it just me? Like the, the dad's fuse is a little bit shorter and mom's is a little more... It's okay. We can do this. And Kim, Kim doesn't have a fuse. Like I'm like, you get your. <laughs> see, see, I'm just tensed up thinking about it now. I'm like, 
<laughs> but you know what? Let's say that happened, right? You're, you just had a bad morning, and, but you're going to church. You're going to make this happen. We've got to go to church. And then you separate. Your children go back there. You come in here. You start to chill out a little bit. The presence of God is here. And your children are back there. But, but, but what's happening? You're separated. You want to apologize. You're thinking about it. Your children are like, oh, you know, whatever. And then they come in here. Maybe you can say hi to them. Maybe you can give them a wave. They're, you know they're looking for you. And they get to spend some time in the same room that you're at where the atmosphere of God is and we're in a worshipful atmosphere. Amen? I think there's something special to that. So, so that's our vision and our goal and our thing here at this church. Children are welcome. We don't care. They get a little restless. I don't care. My, my main goal is that we have an atmosphere here at this church that the family is comfortable in. So with that being said, again, I don't know exactly what Jesus' anger looked like, right? But he says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Here comes the teachable moment for everybody. He uses this moment to connect the innocence of children to entering into the kingdom of God. Now, I used to think this meant entering into heaven, like we're supposed to go into heaven like, oh, wow, isn't this amazing? And, and we have that childlike, awestruck wonder of God in heaven. But actually, the kingdom of God is here right now. We are sitting in the presence of the kingdom of God because we have created an atmosphere of worship, of welcoming him in, and we are here because we want to be close to our creator, right? So to enter into the presence of the kingdom of God means that we need to have that childlike innocence at this very moment to learn about God, to, to connect with God, to be closer to God. And it is in those moments that we are a little more vulnerable and we allow God's Holy Spirit to speak to us, to change us, to transform us more than we would at any other time. Amen? And so... So, uh, in the days of Jesus, it was the Jewish custom that they would, they would dedicate the firstborn uh, uh, male to God into the temple. And that's where we get our tradition of dedicating children to God. It's a biblical tradition. But here in this story, Jesus is well into his ministry. He's traveling around. He's teaching about the kingdom of God, right? He's healing everybody who comes into his presence. He, he heals everybody who is seeking a healing from him. People knew that there was something special about this Jesus. He wasn't just a good philosopher. He wasn't just somebody who was, who was like teaching the things of God in, in a different way or like this magic man who could heal people. There was something about him that was real because people had a stirring within them that told them that. And so, so Jesus... What he did is he, he blesses the children that were brought to him. And he says, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Now think about it. These children were probably playing, running around, laughing, giggling. And here they come. And they're making all this noise. And the disciples are like, whoa, be quiet. You're interrupting him. And Jesus is like, that sound is the sound I love to hear. Don't stop them. Let them come to me. See, no matter how much life's experiences 
hinders our trust in others or hinders our trust in life. We must have this same kind of innocent, childlike trust when it comes to receiving Jesus, when it comes to receiving the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. You know, even the toughest of persons should have this childlike innocence when they come close to God, when they enter into the presence of God. And that's what Jesus was talking about here. You, you, we need to become vulnerable. We need to allow him to teach us. We need, no matter how tough we think we are or, or, or how much life has, has knocked us around, we need to be able to say, I can relax and let Jesus minister to me because I trust him. Amen? So, so yes, baby dedications, child dedications, dedicating our children to the Lord is a very important tradition. And in fact, it is biblical. It's a way of honoring God and saying, God, thank you for what you have blessed us with. And we want to give this child to you as we raise him up as best we know how in your ways. Amen? So there's children dedication. Now, water baptism. I was kind of like getting on edge a little bit. I was like, Thomas, you're starting to preach the sermon here. Like, Water baptisms is very important. It's a part of our Christian faith. But why is it so important? Well, number one, because Jesus commanded we get water baptized. He didn't suggest it. He didn't say it would be a good idea if. He commanded it. And he also set the example by getting water baptized, even though he did not need to be. Now, at that time when he did, let's give you a little idea of what it looked like. His cousin, John the Baptist, who was, as a matter of fact, the first prophet called by God since the prophet Malachi. So in the Old Testament, the last book is Malachi. And, and there is 400 years of silence from God. From Malachi to the announcement of the Messiah, to the announcement of Jesus, to the angel Gabriel who visits Mary, and the angel that visits Joseph, and the angels that visited the shepherds. Now God comes crashing upon the scene again 400 years later. Has it been a prophet that God used as his mouthpiece since Malachi? Here comes John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we often see him in the movies portrayed as, as a crazy. He lived down by the river, not in a van. He lived down by the Jordan River. He made his own clothes out of whatever he could find. He ate locusts and, and honey and uh, tree bark, you know, just whatever. He was the crazy man down by the river preaching a message of repentance. But his message was simple. He was one calling. He was a voice calling the people to prepare themselves for one coming who is greater than he, to prepare themselves for the way of the Lord. Now, his message was very simple. Keep this in mind. You're going to hear this again. In Matthew chapter 3, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near his message repent of your sins turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near people from all over came to see John preach this message maybe they came out of curiosity maybe they came because there was a stirring within them and then what would happen is a few verses later Matthew chapter 3 when they confessed their sins he baptized them in the Jordan River 
Something within them said, I need to confess what's been going on in my life, what I've been doing that is wrong. I want to confess. I want to ask God for forgiveness. And then John would baptize them. So John's message and the act of confession and repentance and then being washed clean in the water was a means of preparing the people for the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. And then, in Matthew chapter 3, a few verses later, verse 13, actually, verse 11, let's just read that. Here's John. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I. Two verses later, then Jesus from Galilee went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Amen. Amen. Everybody heard this. Everybody witnessed this. Everybody saw this as Jesus got baptized. The one who John had been preaching about is now on the scene. The Son of God. And then Jesus walks off into the sunset to go fast into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in preparation for his ministry. During that time, he was tempted face to face by Satan himself. Now, we get tempted by all kinds of things in our lives, right? But I often wonder, what was it like to have Satan, Lucifer, stare you in the eyes and try to deter you from the ministry that you have focused your eyes on to do? Why do you think whenever we feel we have a big thing to do for God, we get so distracted and tempted and thrown off course? Because the devil doesn't want us doing what God has called us to do. Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. No food, no water, no nothing for 40 days, 40 nights. And at the end of that, it said angels tended to him, took care of him. Now Jesus comes upon the scene and he has a very simple message in Matthew chapter 4. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Does that sound familiar? The message hasn't changed, church. It's been the same message for thousands of years, 2,000 years. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. When we repent of our sins and turn to God, we are now entering into the kingdom of heaven that is crashes into our earthly realm here. Jesus ushers in that kingdom of heaven into our lives when we accept him into our lives, when we ask him to be a part of our lives. You know what the entire message of the gospel is? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That sums up this entire book. Right here. That's it. That was Jesus' message. And the culmination of his ministry 
was to be nailed to that cross for the forgiveness of our sins so our bodies could be made whole. He was buried in a tomb for three days and then he resurrected from life, resurrected from the dead to new life in a new body. That was his ministry and that's what he did for us. After he had risen from the grave in his resurrected body, he instituted what is called the Great Commission to his disciples. The Great Commission can be found in the end of the Gospels. In Matthew 28, Jesus came and told his disciples. He's in his resurrected body now. He's been seen by hundreds of people after he had risen from the dead. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, being nailed to that cross, buried in a tomb, raised back to life. He now has authority over everything on, in heaven and in earth. Over it all. He says, therefore, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's what he tells us to do. As a Christian, if you are not sharing your faith with somebody else, you are not carrying out what Jesus commands us to do. It's personal, but it's not a personal faith. We don't keep it to ourselves. We should want to share it with everybody so that we can invite people to church and they too can repent and turn to God and enter into his kingdom and live the life that we understand everybody who doesn't know Jesus can understand. So baptize, baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge in water. So when we are water baptized, like Thomas said, we're doing water baptisms on February 18th. I'm kind of trying to promote that to anybody here who says, I think I need to get water baptized. If you're thinking that, that means the Holy Spirit is saying, get in the water. Sign up today. We are completely immersed in the water. And when we do that, we are identifying with Jesus' death, burial in the grave, and resurrected into a new life. We die to our old selves when we go under the water. We come up a new person in Christ. The old is gone. The new has become. We're here. We're new people. Something spiritual happens. Look around the room when we do water baptisms. You'll see, you'll see the toughest of people wiping tears from their eyes because it brings a memory of when we were water baptized too. I get emotional. We all do. Because we, we know where that person is at because we were once there too. It's a spiritual moment. It's a milestone in a Christian person's walk. Dying to our old selves, coming up out of the water. Now, in the book of Acts, as the early church is growing, in the very beginning, Peter preaches this message. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus and were water baptized at that very moment. What did that look like? I mean, could you imagine signing everybody up to take the class first? Making sure they all had their lives right and were living according to the way we think they're supposed to. And then they can get water back. No. See, that's the thing. We, we have a class here, and the class is this. It helps you get a, get a better understanding of what it is all about. It helps tie some scripture that maybe you didn't know was there. That would help you understand what the experience is about to happen that you are about to go through when you get water baptized. But they didn't have a class back then. You put your faith in Jesus, it's time to get water baptized. You're in. 
The kingdom of, of God has just come crashing into your lives. You know what? Figure everything else out as you go along with God. He'll help you with that. See, it's not my job to tell somebody what they've got going on in their lives that's wrong, right, or indifferent. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict a person of that. But if you have questions or you're struggling, one of my greatest joys as a pastor is helping somebody through that. There is nothing more than I love than just talking about your faith and questions you have and where you're at or where you think you may need to be or whatever. That's what my role is. I don't change you. I point you to Jesus. And you can figure that out with the Holy Spirit and my guidance or somebody else's guidance if you're a part of a life group as well. Amen? Amen. That's what it's all about. For also in the book of Acts, you see that individuals and families and groups of people, as they put their faith in Jesus, that was a part of it. They got water baptized all in one fell swoop. Boom, let's do this. So Jesus commanded we get water baptized. He modeled it for us. And it is important to note that water baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. Right? Water baptism does not mean that now you're saved and, and you can be a Christian. And the question is often asked, will I still get to heaven if I have not been water baptized? Will I get to heaven if I haven't been water baptized? The answer is yes. Of course you will. The thief on the cross, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, there were two thieves on, on either side of him. One was, was cussing and yelling and everything else, and the other one was like, hey, you know, we deserve to be up here. This man is innocent. And he has this salvation moment on the cross. Puts his faith in Jesus, says, remember me when you come into your kingdom today. Something like that. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. We call that a, a, what do we call that, a, just like a, a thief on the cross moment. Like, like you know, I, a pastor friend of mine years ago, uh, Pastor Simon, used to say this, doesn't matter how you get to heaven, just matters that you get there. <laughs> you put your faith in Jesus, whether it's at the last minutes of your life or the very early part of your life, man, that's where you want to be. But water baptism, however, though, is a public display of our faith in Jesus. And if Jesus was water baptized as a man who knew no sin, then we ought to follow what he modeled for us. Amen? It's a way of identifying with him what he did for us and what we will do as we go under the water and come out. Now, communion. Why do we take communion? Communion is something that Jesus instituted during the Last Supper. The Last Supper was the last meal he had with his disciples before he was arrested and, 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 and nailed to the cross. The juice, uh, the, the bread in communion represents his body, which was broken so that ours could be made whole, so that we could receive healing and wellness by Jesus. And, and the wine, or in our case, the juice, represents his shed blood on that cross, which brings about a new covenant with God and his people, and it is because of that shed blood that Jesus has the authority to forgive us of our sins. But in Matthew chapter 26, here, here's, how, here's the beginning of communion. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 26. 
And he took the cup of wine. Uh, uh, no. Uh, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the, to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. Now, now again, Jesus is instituting something. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about. You know, they're just like, okay, well, what is, what, I don't know what he, I don't know, just take the bread. That, that's how I think of it, you know, like. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. That was the, the first, uh, that was Jesus instituting the act of communion that later would come to be that we would do uh, as, as symbolic and in remembrance of what he did for us. Now, the Apostle Paul does a teaching in, the, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in the book of Corinthians, there's two letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. There's a lot of correcting that Paul had to do with the Corinthians. Some of his letters to them are, are a little more rebuking because they, they were, their theology was going sideways a bit. And Paul had to, like, bring him back. And he did this in these letters. And these letters are for us to learn from. But in that, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he teaches on communion. And he talks about how it is good for us to do communion. We do it in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. That's what he says. However, there's a little passage in there. There's a verse in there that throws a lot of people off. And he says, because this people were not really putting the weight behind what communion meant, and they were doing it in just any old way that they wanted to. They weren't paying attention. That threw me off. <laughs> and so Paul said, be careful when you take this in an unworthy manner, for you will be heaping judgment upon yourself. Okay? So a lot of times as believers, we say, well, I've, I've had a bad week. I've, I've slipped. I've, I've fallen into, you know, this old habit, this addiction, this whatever. I, I kicked the dog. I lost my temper. I had a bad week. And now they're having communion at church. I'm unworthy. I should not take communion. I'm a bad person. Well, Paul didn't mean that we have to live a perfect life, you know, where every little mess up causes us to be unworthy. It's just the opposite. If you've had a bad week, if you've slipped, if you're struggling and you realize it, communion is where you need to be. Taking communion with your church family. The atmosphere of communion is where we find forgiveness and healing. Amen? See, what Paul was saying is, we got to check our hearts. Where are we in this? Like, is there any unrepentant sin? Are we harboring uh, uh, ill will towards somebody? Are, are, are we holding on to an offense or a grudge or, 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 or things of that nature? Paul's saying, listen, if you are, if there's things in your life that you're unrepentant about, you're, you can't forgive somebody, you, you better get that in check before you take communion. That's what he's saying. And, and, and because, listen, here's the thing. In, in other words, where are we according to God's standards? We all fall short. So are we doing our best to adhere to the word of God? In, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through to the bone to the marrow. Meaning, it exposes us for who we are. It reveals to us who we really are in our hearts to ourselves. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we can say, Ah, oh, oof, I need, to, I need to fix that. I need to whatever. And then we say, God, please forgive me. Please help me in this. 
As I take communion, I ask for you to help me forgive that person. I ask for you to put away any offense or any grudge. I ask for you to help me live out that part of that life that, where there's some unrepentant stuff. Now, we're in a place where we can do this. Amen? So that's what that's all about. And then, I love King David's transparency. All right? Especially in Psalm 19. And I, 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 I picked this, I came across this in, in my studies here, and I picked this because I felt like this passage might help some of us in starting a conversation with God about an examination, a self-examination, checking where we are at with our hearts. And, and I, I think this passage might help us peel back some of those layers in our lives so that we can allow the Word of God to cut through all of that and to reveal to us who we really are so we can get that right with God. And so in just a moment, we're going to take communion together. But I want to read this passage. But if you did not get your communion elements on your way in, hold your, your hands up and the ushers will get those to you. If there's anybody that still needs them, hold your hands up high. They'll get those to you while I keep talking. And then on the back tables, if you need a gluten-free, there's some on the back there. We're going to prepare to take communion. But we're going to say this prayer in Psalm 119. So we know that Jesus said, this bread represents his body that was broken for us. And this juice represents his blood that was shed for us. But if any of us is not too sure where we're at with God, like, like well, I used to wonder, like, I used to say a prayer, God, just if there's anything I don't know that I'm doing I shouldn't be doing, reveal it to me. And listen to this Psalm 19, verse 12. This could be our conversation to God. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Lord, help me. Convict me when I'm about to do something I know I shouldn't do. Don't let them control me. Don't let my sinful nature and these things I ought not be doing control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Isn't that a good prayer? Doesn't that sound like a good starting point to examining ourselves with God? And he will, re if you talk to him, just repeat that to him and be honest with him. He will reveal to you what may need change in your life. But as we take this communion, this bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken so that ours could be made whole. And like Jesus said, take this and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then this juice represents the shed blood of Jesus, which is the new covenant between God and his people. And Jesus alone, because of what he did for us on the cross, and the, the, and the blood of his that was shed, poured out, is what gives him the authority to forgive us of our sins. And I ask Jesus right now, you would forgive us of our sins as we drink this juice in remembrance of what you have done for us. And I thank you, Jesus, for this. 
And I just sense and pray that some of you have actually really received forgiveness right now. Like forgiveness you didn't think. Like I, I sense God's Holy Spirit right now just forgiving you and loving you. And, and I don't know if any of you are healing, hearing this right now, but I think God is saying to some of you, it's okay. I love you. We'll figure this out together. For now, bask in the moment of my presence because I just want to be with you, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we close this message out, we can see in the scriptures, it's biblical, it's a biblical tradition to dedicate our homes, our, our churches, our buildings, our businesses, our cars, and our children to God. And when it comes to our children, as parents, we want the very best for them, right? We have dreams and, and hopes and plans that they succeed and they prosper. And what is the very best thing we could do for our children? Mark chapter 10, verse 16. Then Jesus took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. Directing our children towards Jesus is the very best we could do for them. And then when it comes to our Christian faith and identifying with Jesus, one of the most significant steps we can take is water baptism. It's a public declaration of our faith. It's symbolic of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried in the tomb, and then resurrecting into his new body. Dying to our old selves as we go under the water and coming up as a new person in Christ. The old is gone. The new has begun. And then there is communion. As believers, partaking in communion together is something that should bring us closer to God. It can bring healing and it can bring forgiveness as we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us and receiving all that he has for us. Amen? So let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you, Jesus, for all you do for us. I thank you, Jesus, for all that we have because of you. I thank you, Jesus, for the things that you commanded we do that bring us closer to you, that... that, that Help us identify with what you did for us. And I thank you, Jesus, for instituting communion that helps us periodically remember what you did for us. And so as we head into a time of...